Chapter Three of the Crown of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Crown of Life by George Gissing. Chapter Three. A little apart from the village of Yule, within sight of the noble trees and broad herbage of Nonsuch Park, and looking southward to the tilth and pasture of the downs, stood the house occupied by Mr. Lee Hannaford. It was just too large to be called a cottage, not quite old enough to be picturesque, a pleasant enough dwelling, amid its green garden plot, sheltered on the north side by a dark hedge of yew, and shut from the quiet road by privet topped with lilac and laburnum. This day of early summer, fresh after rains, with a clear sky and the sun wide gleaming over young leaf and bright blossom, with nature's perfume wafted along every alley, about every field and lane, showed the spot at its best. But it was with no eye to natural beauty that Mr. Hannaford had chosen this abode. Such considerations left him untouched. He wanted a cheap house not far from London, where his wife's uncertain health might receive benefit, and where the simplicity of the surroundings would offer no temptations to casual expense. For his own part, he was a good deal from home, coming and going as it suited him. A very small income from capital and occasional earnings by contribution to scientific journalism left slender resources to Mrs. Hannaford and her daughter, after the husband's needs were supplied. Thus it came about that they gladly ceded a spare room to Piers Otway, who, having boarded with them during his student time at Geneva, had at long intervals kept up a correspondence with Mrs. Hannaford, a lady he admired. The rooms were indifferently furnished in part owing to poverty, and partly because neither of the ladies cared much for things domestic. Mr. Hannaford's sanctum alone had character. It was hung about with lethal weapons of many kinds and many epochs, including a memento of every important war waged in Europe since the date of Waterloo. A smoke-grimed rifle from some battlefield was, in Hannaford's view, a thing greatly precious. Still more, a bayonet with a stain of blood these relics appealed to his emotions. Under glass were ranged minutiae such as bullets, fragments of shells, bits of gore-drenched cloth or linen, a splinter of human bone, all ticketed with neat inscription. The bookcase contained volumes of military history, works on firearms, treatises on chiefly explosive chemistry, Several great portfolios were packed with maps and diagrams of warfare. Upstairs, a long garret served as laboratory, and here were ranged less valuable possessions, weapons to which some doubt attached, unbloody scraps of accoutrements, also a few models of cannon and the like. In society, Hannaford was an entertaining, sometimes a charming man, with a flow of well-informed talk, of agreeable anecdote. His friends liked to have him at the dinner-table. He could never be at a loss for a day or two's board and lodging when his home wearied him. Under his own roof he seldom spoke, save to find fault, rarely showed anything but acrid countenance. He and his wife were completely alienated, but for their child they would long ago have parted. It had been a love-match, and the daughter's name, Olga, still testified to the romance of their honeymoon but that was nearly twenty years gone by 
and of these at least fifteen had been spent in discord, concealed or flagrant. Mrs. Hannaford was something of an artist. Her husband spoke of all art with contempt, except the great art of human slaughter. She liked the society of foreigners. He, though a remarkable linguist, at heart distrusted and despised all but English-speaking folk. As a girl in her teens, she had been charmed by the man's virile accomplishments, his soldierly bearing and gay talk of martial things, though Hannaford was only a teacher of science. Nowadays, she thought with dreary wonder of that fascination, and had come to loathe every trapping and habiliment of war. She knew him profoundly selfish, and recognised the other faults which had hindered so clever a man from success in life indolent habits, moral untrustworthiness, and a conceit which at times menaced insanity. He hated her, she was well aware, because of her cold criticism. She returned his hate with interest. Save in suicide, of which she had sometimes thought, Mrs. Hannaford saw but one hope of release. A sister of hers had married a rich American, and was now a widow in failing health that sister's death might perchance endow her with the means of liberty she hung upon every message from across the atlantic she had a brother too a distinguished but not a wealthy man dr derwent would gladly have seen more of her gladly have helped to cheer her life but a hearty antipathy held him aloof from lee hannaford communication between the two families was chiefly maintained through dr derwent's daughter irene now in her nineteenth year. The girl had visited her aunt at Geneva, and since then had occasionally been a guest at Ewell. Having just returned from a winter abroad with her father, and no house being ready for her reception in London, Irene was even now about to pass a week with her relatives. They expected her to-day. The prospect of Irene's arrival enabled Mrs. Hannaford and Olga to find pleasure in the sunshine, which otherwise brought them little solace. Neither was in sound health. The mother had an interesting face, the daughter had a touch of beauty, but something morbid appeared on the countenance of each. They lived a strange life, lonely, silent, the stillness of the house unbroken by a note of music, unrelieved by the sound of laughter. In the neighbourhood they had no friends. Only at long intervals did a London acquaintance come thus far to call upon them. But for the presence of Piers Otway at meals, and sometimes in the afternoon or evening, they would hardly have known conversation. For when Hannaford was at home, his sour muteness discouraged any kind of talk. In his absence, mother and daughter soon exhausted all they had to say to each other, and read or brooded or nursed their headaches apart. With the coming of Irene, gloom vanished. It had always been so since the beginning of her girlhood. The name of Irene Derwent signified miseries forgotten, mirthful hours, the revival of health and hope. Unable to resist her influence, Hannaford always kept as much as possible out of the way when she was under his roof. The conflict between inclination to unbend and stubborn coldness towards his family made him too uncomfortable. Vivaciously tactful in this, as in all things, Irene had invented a pleasant fiction which enabled her to meet Mr. Hannaford without embarrassment. She always asked him, "'How is your neuralgia?' 
and the man according as he felt made answer that it was better or worse that neuralgia was often a subject of bitter jest between mrs hannaford and olga but it had entered into the life of the family and at times seemed to be believed in even by the imagined sufferer nothing could have been more characteristic of irene wit at the service of good feeling expressed her nature her visit this time would be specially interesting for she had passed the winter in finland amid the intellectual society of helsingfors letters had given a foretaste of what she would have to tell but irene was no great letter-writer she had an impatience of remaining seated at a desk she didn't even read very much her delight was in conversation in movement in active life for several years her father had made her his companion as often as possible in holiday travel and on the journeys prompted by scientific study though successful as a medical man dr derwent no longer practised he devoted himself to pathological research and was making a name in the world of science his wife who had died young left him two children the elder, Eustace, was an amiable and intelligent young man, but had small place in his father's life compared with that held by Irene. She was to arrive at Ewell in time for luncheon. Her brother would bring her and return to London in the afternoon. Olga walked to the station to meet them. Mrs. Hannaford, having paid unusual attention to her dress, she had long since ceased to care how she looked, save on very exceptional occasions, moved impatiently nervously about the house and the garden her age was not yet forty but a life of disappointment and unrest had dulled her complexion made her movements languid and was beginning to touch with grey her soft wavy hair under happier circumstances she would have been a most attractive woman her natural graces were many her emotions were vivid and linked with a bright intelligence her natural temper inclined to the nobler modes of life unfortunately little care had been given to her education her best possibilities lay undeveloped thrown upon her inadequate resources she nourished the weaknesses instead of the virtues of her nature she was always saying to herself that life had gone by and was wasted for life meant love and love in her experience had been a flitting folly an error of crude years which should in all justice have been thrown aside and forgotten allowing her a second chance too late now often she lay through the long nights shedding tears of misery too late her beauty blurred her heart worn with suffering often poisoned with bitterness yet there came moments of revolt when she rose and looked at herself in the mirror and asked but for Olga she would have tried to shape her own destiny. But today she could look up at the sunshine. Irene was coming. A sound of young voices in the quiet road, then the shimmer of a bright costume, the gleam of a face all health and charm and merriment. Irene came into the garden, followed by her brother, and behind them Olga. Her voice woke the dull house. Of a sudden it was alive, responding to the cheerful mood of its inhabitants. The rooms had a new appearance. Sunlight seemed to penetrate to every shadowed corner. Colours were brighter. Two familiar objects became interesting. 
the dining-room table commonly so uninviting gleamed as for a festival irene's eyes fell on everything and diffused her own happy spirit irene had an excellent appetite every one enjoyed the meal this girl could not but bestow something of herself on all with whom she came together where she felt liking her influence was incalculable how much better you look than when i last saw you she said to her aunt yule evidently suits you and at once mrs hannaford felt that she was stronger younger than she had thought yes she felt better than for a long time and yule was exactly suited to her health is that pastel yours olga admirable the best thing of yours i ever saw and olga who had thought her pastel worthless saw all at once that it really was not bad she glowed with gratification the cousins were almost of an age of much the same stature but olga had a pallid tint tawny hair and bluish eyes whilst irene's was a warm complexion her hair of dark brown and her eyes of hazel as efficient human beings there could be no comparison between them olga looked frail and despondent inclined to sullenness whilst irene impressed one as in perfect health abounding in gay vitality and infinite in helpful resource straight as an arrow her shoulders the perfect curve bosom and hips full moulded to the ideal of ripe girlhood she could not make a gesture which was not graceful nor change her position without revealing a new excellence of form yet a certain taste would have lent towards miss hannaford whose traits had more mystery as an uncommon type she gained by this juxtaposition miss derwent despite her larger experience of the world her vastly better education was a much younger person than olga she had an occasional naivete unknown to her cousin her sex was far less developed to the average man olga's proximity would have been troubling whereas irene's would simply have given delight during the excitement of the arrival and through the cheerful meal which followed eustace derwent maintained a certain reserve was always rather in the background this implied no defect of decent sentiment the young man he was four-and-twenty could not regard his aunt and cousin with any fond emotion but he did not dislike them and was willing to credit them with all the excellent qualities perceived by irene wondering merely how his father's sister a member of the derwent family could have married such a doubtful customer as lee hannaford eustace never became demonstrative he had in perfection the repose of a self-conscious delicately bred and highly trained englishman in a day of democratization he supported the ancient fame of the university which fostered gentlemen balliol was his college his respect for that name and his reverence for the great master who ruled there were not inconsistent with a private feeling that whatever he might owe to balliol balliol in turn lay under a certain obligation to him his academic record had no brilliancy he aimed at nothing of the kind knowing his limitations or rather his distinctions but he was quietly conscious that no graduate of his year better understood the niceties of decorum more creditably represented the tone of that famous school of manners 
Eustace Derwent was, in fact, a thoroughly clear-minded and well-meaning young man, sensitive as to his honour, ambitious of such social advancement as would illustrate his name, unaffectedly attached to those of his own blood, and anxious to fulfil with entire propriety all the recognised duties of life. He was intelligent with originality. He was good-natured without shadow of boisterous impulse. In countenance he strongly resembled his mother, who had been a very handsome woman. Irene had more of her father's features. And, of course, he well knew that the eyes of ladies rested upon him with peculiar interest. But no vulgar vanity appeared in his demeanour. As a matter of routine, he dressed well, but he abhorred the hint of foppishness. In athletics he had kept the golden mean, as in all else. He exercised his body for health, not for the pride of emulation. As to his career, he was at present reading for the bar. In meditative moments it seemed to him that he was perhaps best fitted for the diplomatic service. Not till this gentleman had taken his leave, which he did to catch a train soon after lunch, was there any mention of the fact that the Hannafords had a stranger residing under their roof, in coarse English, a lodger. To Eustace, as his aunt knew, the subject would necessarily have been painful, and not only in the snobbish sense, it would really have distressed him to learn that his kinsfolk were glad of such a supplement to their income. But soon after his retirement, Mrs. Hannaford spoke of the matter, and no sooner had she mentioned Piers Otway's name than Irene flashed upon her a look of attentive interest. Is he related to Jerome Otway, the agitator? His son! Oh, how delightful! Oh, I know all about him. Oh, I mean, about the old man. One of our friends at Helsingfors was an old French revolutionist who has lived a great deal in England. He was always talking about his English friends of long ago, and Jerome Otway often came in. He didn't know whether he was still alive. Oh, I must write and tell him. The ladies gave what information they could, it amounted to very little, about the recluse of Wensleydale, and then they talked of the young man. We knew him at Geneva, first of all, said Mrs. Hannaford. Indeed, he lived with us there for a time. He was only a boy then, and such a nice boy. He has changed a good deal. Don't you think so, Olga? I don't mean for the worse, not at all. But he's not so talkative and companionable. You'll find him shy at first, I fancy. He works terrifically, put in Olga. It's certain he must be injuring his health. Then, exclaimed Irene, why do you let him? Let him? We have no right to interfere with a young man of one and twenty. Oh, surely you have, if he's behaving foolishly, to his own harm. But what do you call terrific work? All day long, and goodness knows how much of the night. Somebody told us his light had been seen burning once at nearly three o'clock. Is he at it now? asked Irene, with a comical look towards the ceiling. They explained Otway's absence. Oh, he lunches with members of Parliament, does he? It's a very exceptional thing for him to leave home, said Mrs. Hannaford. He only goes out to breathe the air for half an hour or so in an afternoon. You astonish me, aunt. You oughtn't to allow it. 
I shan't allow it, I assure you. The listeners laughed gaily. My dear Irene, said her aunt, Mr. Otway will be much flattered, I'm sure, but his examination comes on very soon, and he was telling us only yesterday that he didn't want to lose an hour if he could help it. He'll lose a good many hours before long at this rate. Silly fellow! That's not the way to do well at an exam. I must counsel him for his soul's good. I must indeed. Will he dine here tonight? No doubt. And make all haste to get away when dinner is over, said Olga with a smile. Then we won't let him. He shall tell us all about the Member of Parliament, and then all about his famous father. I undertake to keep him talking until ten. Oh, then, poor fellow, he'll have to work all night to make it up. Indeed, no. I shall expressly forbid it. Oh, what a shocking thing if he died here and it got into the papers. Oh, aunt, do consider. They'd call you his landlady. Mrs. Hannaford reddened while laughing, and the girl saw that her joke was not entirely relished, but she could never resist the temptation to make fun of certain prejudices. "'And when you do give your evidence,' she went on, "'the coroner will remark that if the influence of a lady so obviously sweet and right-feeling and intelligent could not avail to save the poor youth, he was plainly destined to a premature end.' at which Mrs. Hannaford again laughed and reddened, but this time with gratification. If Irene sometimes made a mistake, no one could have perceived it more quickly and more charmingly have redeemed the slip. End of chapter 3